So there we have John 11. Four days. Four long days. Lazarus' dead body had laid in that dark tomb. Four days Martha and Mary had mourned the death of their brother. And after four days, along comes Jesus. He was late. He was too late. The two sisters had sent word to him days before, and if he had turned up when he initially heard, it may have been okay. But Jesus stayed where he was. He could have done something, but he stayed where he was. He must have been able to do something, the sisters thought. We know he's special. They just didn't quite get how special he was. Why had he waited two more days? Jesus' ideas were different, though. He wasn't too late. It wasn't just that he was some kind of eternal optimist, always hoping for the best, always thinking, this isn't a lost cause, we'll be okay. It seems he had known from the start Lazarus was going to die. And yet he had stayed where he was. He knew what he was going to do about it. He had waited. He had waited almost to make sure that Lazarus was properly dead. So that a doctor's examination, there could be no doubt. And he and his disciples turn up to the funeral. And they're mourning. And the expectation has gone. And it seems hopeless. They had seen in the past he could heal sick people, he could open blind eyes but, but raising the dead is a whole other level only, only God can do that kind of stuff only he has the power over life and death and yet in the midst of this seemingly hopeless situation Jesus says to Martha, trust me trust me verse 23 says your brother will rise again and Martha, being a Jew, believing in the, a general resurrection at the end of time, says, well, yes, I know that. I know that one day all dead will be raised and will be judged. Verse 24. But he narrows her thinking from this general belief about a resurrection out there somewhere to focus in on him. Upon himself. We'll spend most of our evening in verses 25 and 26. Jesus' frankly astounding claim as to who he is and what our response ought to be to him. And also, how do we live in this kind of world now? This kind of Lazarus in a tomb, death, suffering type world. How are we supposed to live in response to that? Let me read verses 25 and 26 again for us. Look at them with me. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? You see, what we've got in John 11 this evening isn't just a moving account of a family funeral. If what Jesus is saying is true if his claim to Martha here is genuine, well, here we have the answer to the problem of death. The answer. He's offering us life now and life for the future. The problem of death dealt with. 
Death makes a mockery of all that we try and achieve. It's the great leveller, the ultimate statistic, regardless of our, our background or our nationality or our, our worldview or our IQ or our income or our social class or anything. One day, every single one of us in this room will die. It's as if we're all in a queue, waiting, 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 and each one of us one day reaches the front and it's our turn. We don't know when that will be. That may be 60 years' time, that may be tomorrow. But we're all in a queue. One day each of us will die. And of course we generally do our best to either avoid thinking about it, it's the head-in-the-sand ostrich tactic, it's not the kind of thing you'll be chatting about over the photocopier at work tomorrow, or as you're handing around the after-eight mints at the dinner party. So either we forget about it, or we have the defence mechanism of humour where we don't think about death. And there are quotes galore. Groucho Marx was once asked what it was like, what it felt like to be 90, 90 years old, and he replied it was better than the alternative. Or Woody Allen, who seems to have an endless quotes on death, says, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. So we avoid it by humour. Maybe death is something that's very close to us. Actually, it's very hard to think about. This, this last week for me, uh, Wednesday just gone would have been my dad's 61st birthday, but he died about five and a half years ago. The same Wednesday, a close family friend who's just adopted two girls died. And then yesterday, seeing my 97-year-old gran, who I doubt will last a month. Death is around us. Death affects us. And yet here in these verses, we have the answer to the problem of death. Jesus claims he can bring life now and life for the future. If we're all trapped in a queue, waiting, waiting, waiting for our turn at the front, then he offers us a way through when we reach the front. It turns out it's not the end for the Christian. How is that? Well, as we've said, Mary, Mary and Martha would have believed in a, in a general resurrection that they talk of. They believe that one day everybody will be raised and everybody will be judged. And yet Jesus brings this general idea into himself, into specifics. He, he redefines resurrection. He, he redefines life for us. It's not an abstract thought or a concept or idea. It's about a person, a man with flesh and blood. If you've been around in previous weeks, you might remember Jesus using words like I am as he claims things about himself. We've seen it again and again and again, actually. So he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the vine. And in each one, he's making this claim that he is God. See, back at the start of the Bible, when uh, they first meet God, they encounter him and he reveals stuff about himself to them. He gives himself the name, I am who I am. And then a couple thousand years later, this guy turns up and starts saying, I am. It's very deliberate, very provocative. Just one example, if you've missed it in chapter 8, before Abraham was, he says, I am. And so they picked up their stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself. Why do they want to kill him? Well, because he's saying he is equal with God. He's on a par with God. Which, of course, if it's not true, would be utter blasphemy. 
is not true. I am the resurrection and the life. Here is the problem of death dealt with. I don't know whether um, you will publicly admit to having watched When Harry Met Sally. I'm sure with the various endless repeats that go on in the different channels, you're, unless you're very luck- lucky, you will probably have seen it at least once. You might remember that Harry is utterly obsessed with, with death. He's, he's got this morbid fascination. There's this conversation he has with Sally that goes a bit like this. He says to her, do you ever think about death? She says, yes. Harry says, well, sure you do. A fleeting thought that drifts in and out of your mind. I spend hours. I spend days thinking about it. And Sally says, and you think that makes you a better person? And Harry says, look, when the ship goes down, I'm going to be, prepare- I'm going to be prepared. And you are not. That's all I'm saying. She says, in the meantime, you're going to ruin your whole life waiting for it. Sally has her life all figured out in New York. Basically, she's a happy person. She's happy because she doesn't think about death. She avoids it. But Harry is worse because he spends his whole time thinking about it. He even reads the last page of a book first to say that death won't catch him out and spoil it. But as Sally says, well, it's going to ruin your whole life. It's going to ruin your enjoyment of living in this world. And he has no, no answers. He's just this morbid worrier, obsessed with death. There's no solution that he has. And here's Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Here is Harry's solution, if he were a real man. Here is the sting of death taken away forever. Outside of him, Jesus, outside of him, there is no resurrection, there is no life. Mary's general belief focused into this specific, to this person, this pivot, this hinge around which it all hangs. She says, It's my voice that the dead will hear as I raise them. It's me who will judge them. It's through me that they will be raised forever. The illustration doesn't completely work, but it's a bit like saying Microsoft is is all about Bill Gates. Without Bill Gates, there is no Microsoft. You can't divorce the two. They're, They're stuck together. While so, there is no resurrection. There is no real life outside of Jesus. Resurrection doesn't happen outside of him. And neither does life. He's talking much more than just a beating heart or lungs that work or blood that's going around our bodies. It's life as it was meant to be lived, the life that we were made for. Life that starts now while you're in the queue and goes on through forever. See, at the start of the Bible, we've got this picture of what life was meant to be like. Life that we were meant to have, life with With God, life with creation around us in perfect harmony. That's the life we were made for. And God says to Adam and Eve, but you need me as your loving boss. Okay, I'm kind, but I need to be in charge because I made you. And if you walk away from me, and if you rebel against me, and if you eat the fruit, well, I'm utterly just. And I will punish you. 
literally says, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And they eat the fruit, and they rebel against God. But they keep living. Their heart keeps beating, they keep breathing, blood keeps pumping. Their relationship with God is broken. They don't have the life they once had. And Jesus says here, I am the resurrection and the life. He's not talking about hearts that pump or lungs that breathe. He's talking about the life that we were made to have, life in relationship with the God who made us. And so they reach the front of the queue. And our physical hearts stop beating. But a little spiritual heart keeps going because we're in a relationship with the God who made us. And I take it the question has to be, well, is that you? Do you have that kind of life? The life that you were made for with your creator? It might be you're here, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I would love for you to wrestle with that claim from Jesus. Is this world just an accident and we're just matter and we die and we rot and just get over it? Or is there more to it than that? Because Jesus is claiming there is. He is saying that he is the resurrection and the life and this is not it. There's more to it than this. And frankly, whether you believe in God or not, if you're an honest historian, then you need to wrestle with Jesus' claims. You need to deal with this man and what he says. You can't just ignore him. Maybe you are here and you're a Christian. I take it our question must be, why do we look for life elsewhere? Jesus says, I'm all you need, I'm where you find life. And yet we go after other gods that promise us life. They whisper to us that we need them to be happy and fulfilled and to have joy. And they say to us, this is the kind of thing you're made for. This is what living on this world is all about. Gods of grades, power, money, friends, stuff. And we bow to them, and we worship them, and we trust them, and they consume us, and they eat us. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Come to me. I'm all you need. Come to me for life now. I can provide. I can satisfy. Don't go anywhere else. You just need me. And they aren't empty promises. If you look back down at the text, as he asks Martha to trust him as the only one who can bring life. So he says to them, verse 43, roll the stone away. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And you could have heard a pin drop. All eyes on Lazarus, squinting in the sunlight. Grave clothes still wrapped around him. He doesn't just say to us, I can give you life. 
He shows us that he gives life. As a dead man's ears are opened, as he's resuscitated, as he responds to the voice of his maker. And yet, in a funny way, Lazarus points us ahead to what's to come as well. We're only just halfway through John's Gospel. We're going to be here for another few months. John 11 stretches our eyes forward to the end, to the end of John's account. And we see Jesus himself conquering death. Jesus offering us new life. Jesus dying on the cross on a Friday and being raised again on a Sunday. Just glance ahead to next week. I'm going to have a sneaky peek at what Peter's saying next week. Uh, verse 49 to 52. You get this high priest, Caiaphas. The news reaches his ears of what Jesus has done. And Caiaphas says something very interesting. He spoke up and said, You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. To bring them together and make them one. It's fascinating. Caiaphas speaks more than he knows. He speaks truth. Jesus will go on and die for the nation. As he dies on the cross, so our (coughs) perpetual problem of sin and suffering and death is finally dealt with. He takes the punishment that we deserve from God on himself. And so we don't face that judgment. I am the resurrection and the life. We're in a queue. And we reach the front. And we carry on because of Jesus. Because we have this life that we were made for. This life now and this life for the future. I want that to be what you cling on to and take away this evening. But I just want to look at a couple of things as well that this passage teaches us about what living this side of death looks like. What it means for us tomorrow morning. We get out of bed and we go and do what we do. What does this passage say to us? Just a couple of thoughts. The first one is that living now is not easy. You see that particularly in verse 33 and 35. If if you were around on a Sunday morning about three weeks ago, we're going to be looking at similar stuff here. But there is this peculiar mix of, of anger from Jesus, kind of mixed together in this cocktail with grief, with sadness, with tears. And I want to say to you this evening that, that those emotions are absolutely right as we live this side of the cross. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. The, the anger and the indignation is there in 33. See that there, the uh, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. It's knowing that there's something wrong and allowing that to affect you. Actually feeling that there's something wrong. If you're anything like me, you will likely have some kind of a defence mechanism so that you don't actually feel that. You can kind of almost pop your heart away in a box 
and not let the pain of life really affect you now. Very rarely might we be honest about that, but we're, we're immersed in a kind of Lazarus world. We see pain and injustice on TV and we flick over. Maybe we read blogs on suffering and injustice. I don't know if you saw that thing last week, that um, Comey guy, the uh, Ugandan child soldiers, there was a viral video produced, 30 minute video. It went around, millions of people watched it on YouTube. Uh, the next day there were lots of questions about it, uh, and particularly about the charity who does it and where they spend their money. But it does seem that the cause was utterly valid, and this Coney guy is a nasty piece of work. I wonder, of the millions of people who actually watched the video, apart from sharing it to their friends, did anybody actually do anything? If you watched it here this evening, did you actually do anything apart from watch it? It's fascinating, isn't it, how, how we, we're almost anaesthetised to the suffering and pain and injustice of the world. These situations, we're bombarded by information, but actually it's very difficult at times to actually do anything because our hearts are in a box and we don't really let them get affected. Anger seems to be a good and right emotion the kind of broken world in which we live. And Jesus feels this anger. And he weeps as well, verse 35. You see there, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. It's incredibly poignant. I take it he's not weeping because he's missing Lazarus. And he feels a bit sad about it. He's going to raise him in a few minutes' time. But that seems pretty obvious. That's always been the plan from the start of John 11. It's rather the pain and the anger leads him to weep. He he feels and he's affected by it. Anger without weeping or or weeping without anger leads us muddled up and things not quite right. One of the commentaries on this section says this. It says, those who follow Jesus as his disciples today do well to learn the same tension that grief and compassion without outrage reduce to mere sentiment. While outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous arrogance. We need the two together. Anger and compassion. If you're here and you're British, or English particularly, and you're a bloke particularly, we can get pretty, we find it hard to express our emotions and how we're feeling about stuff. This sort of stiff upper lip mentality is what we're told from day one. And yet this week, let me encourage you, all of us, to just chew over Jesus' anger and his grief as he sees this broken world, as you see sin and suffering and death, don't don't keep your heart in a box. Let yourself be affected by the pain of this world. Let it move you. So, first thing to say is it's hard. The second thing to say is that living now is about trusting in Jesus. Jesus is utterly trustworthy. We've seen it in John 11. He seems to manufacture the situation whereby it's clear 
who he is. Who has the power? What power? looks like there is no doubt Lazarus is dead. There is no doubt it was a miracle. There is no doubt that he has raised him. He makes that very obvious. And it seems to me that the Lord loves to put us into those situations where we have to realise it's not about us. Where we have to trust him. Where it's about him. Where we know for sure that it's not us. It looks hopeless. It looks like a lost cause. And yet, Jesus is trustworthy. So whatever that worry is in your life, wherever you might think God's forgotten you, he's not. Now it might be that his plans aren't your plans, or your plans aren't his plans. But Lazarus shows us that if it's the Lord's plans, it's never a lost cause. He's always in charge. He's always bringing about his purposes. And he's always doing that at the perfect time to bring himself glory, the most glory. So the second thing for us to grip onto this week is that life now is about trusting Jesus. And again, as you fast forward a few pages to the end of John's Gospel. We find ourselves in what looks like an even more hopeless situation as we look at the cross. This man who promised life is removed lifeless from a cross and is placed in a tomb. And it seems that all hope is gone. But just three days later we see what he says is utterly true. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's trust him for life.